Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gay Omago land by me, Leah Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Uh, Love, Rinse, Repeat is proudly supported by Uniting Mission and Education, and I thank them for their ongoing support. My guest today, joining us from across the pond, is the wonderful Thea Cooper. Thea, welcome along. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here. So for those who don't know, Thea Cooper is Professor of Religion at Gustavus uh, Adolphus College. Uh, Professor Cooper undertook her Master of Theology at Edinburgh's New College in 1999 and completed her PhD in 2005, both under Marcella Althus-Reed, which is a key important note because today we are discussing her new book, Queer and Indecent, an introduction to Marcella Althaus-Reed, which is out now through SCM Press. Uh, She's also the book uh, author of a host of other books, including uh, A Christian Guide to Liberating Desire, Sex, Partnership, Work and Reproduction. Uh, And I'm very excited to have you on the Very long title. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember sharing that, like I took a photo of it when I bought that with one of the Palgrave sites. I bought a few books and someone was like, wow, uh, Professor Cooper's, you know, taking on a, a, a you know, very modest uh, <laughs> project. Yes, it's, it's a very modest task. And um, I just wanted to call it Liberating Sex, but um, that might have been a little too exciting a title um, and and too brief. It's also, you know, good to warn people what they're about to read mm. rather than just surprising them. So, yeah. yes, the editor the editor chose that, that, that title and it's totally fine, but I always shorten it. I'm like, it's a guide to sex. Yeah, that's great. I don't know, think about your sales would have been if you just yeah, Thea Cooper's guide to sex. You know? I think you definitely Ooh, you know, gosh, some interest. Yeah. <laughs> so Ooh, yeah. let's 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 start with with queer and indecent. So I guess just I'm curious about like the the process of coming toward this book uh, and maybe, you know, your your broad hopes for it um, as as you began to engage this this yeah, to, to try to write an introduction of this kind. Um, you know, I'm sure there's a million ways you probably thought and wrestled with how you'd go uh, about this and how you'd organize it. So so I guess just talk a bit about the leading into the process and, and your hopes for the work. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, I'm so excited that it looks so beautiful. Um, it, it took ages to find um, that that uh, painting the, of the person who actually did that painting. Uh, unfortunately, I came across her. She's a Brazilian woman. Mm-hmm. I was able to find her and get permission. So that was super exciting. Right. Um, how did the book happen? Um, so it actually started... Um, and I think I mentioned this maybe in the introduction or the acknowledgements, but I was having coffee with a friend of mine who's a Methodist minister. And uh, I had lent him a couple of Marcella's books. And, you know, we talked a little about the introductions and we're sort of wrestling with some of the concepts. And, and I said, God, you know, I should really just write like a journal article that kind of says, here, here's kind of the basic stuff you would want to know before you dive into this, um, because she had such a breadth of knowledge, right? And she brought so many different um, academic analyses in. Uh, and and he said to me, he's like, I think that would be a book <laughs> rather than a journal article. And I was like, no, no. And then I started thinking and I started making a list and and um, it, this book totally appealed to um, my research side because when I do research, I want to try to read everything there is out there on the topic. And normally that's impossible. Um, 
But with with Marcella's work, uh, she had right three books and then about fifty chapters and articles uh, that she'd written, and so I was, you know, actually able to mm. um, get access to most, if not all, of it, and then and then read through it. And so as I started reading and rereading. Um, and making lists of of possible things I would talk about, I realized that that my friend Andy was totally right that this this was going to be a book, and also that there there was no way um, that I I could or would even want to um, try to talk about everything Marcella mm-hmm. did because obviously you would read Marcella's work <laughs> to figure that out. Um, but she was my uh, PhD supervisor, so I actually met her um, even before I started the master's in theology. Um, I interviewed with her at the at the University of Edinburgh, and was like, "Whoa, there's a liberation theologian, and it's so exciting!" Because I had uh, met with other people prior to this, mainly in the U.S., who were sort of like, "What liberation theology is dead? You don't, you know, why would you even want to study this?" And mm. then I met Marcella, and there was like a real live liberationist, you know, so super exciting. Um, so she ended up being my PhD supervisor. Um, uh, very gently led me into liberation theology because I was a very nice white lady who, <laughs> although I'd grown up very poor, um, I didn't understand a lot of the other right various forms of oppression. I didn't even really think much about gender oppression until I was a student rep um, at the Faculty of Divinity and and. It was just kind of funny. There were there were very few women at the time uh, in the faculty, and so my voice, not only being a student voice but also a female voice, you know, was a little bit like when I heard myself talk, I thought, "Whoa, that's totally different than others in the room." And <laughs> then Marcella also um, <clears throat> would be quite vibrant at times. Um, so I um, really. Um, I knew that her work, although she was only able to write, you know, for about maybe, gosh, 12 or 13 years before she died, um, unfortunately, um, her work uh, had followed a trajectory, was was continuing to expand um, and was really far ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly when I was studying under her, I did not appreciate uh, fully what she was doing. And so it's only now, right, 15 years, 20 years later that I, I think, oh, okay, transgender, I get this. Like, I understand, you know, or, or thinking about people who are totally excluded from the system rather than just marginalized. So um, I thought, what? the heck can I say that will help draw people in? Mm. Um, my goal really was to twofold. One, to um, get people to want to read Marcella's work, because I think sometimes we tend to forget about people who have written 10 or 15 years ago. Um, but often uh, for for many liberationists, um, who are are thinking so differently from other people around them, you know, it really takes that time for people to process and understand. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and then the second piece was for people to realize that there's actually a whole bunch of her work out there, um, apart from the two books, which are the most famous. And a lot of the chapters and articles she wrote um, are much more easily accessible, I think, than than the more formal um, to academic books. So, mm-hmm. yeah, thank you for that. And I think what's, what's helpful is throughout the book in the, um, at the end of each chapter, you have some suggested reading. And a lot of that is drawing attention to articles that, you know, you, you wouldn't otherwise probably a lot of people wouldn't otherwise know, but yes, can be found and, yeah. and, and really helpful. How was the process, I guess, you know, often we research things that, um, or research writers that we've you know, never met or haven't engaged. And, and, and you're, you're uh, engaged in this both in the sense of, okay, there's this corpus of work that I can now engage, mm-hmm. um, but also there's this person who, you know, was obviously, as you just already already shared, very influential in shaping who you are yeah. as a theologian and as yeah. an academic. So how did you find um, navigating, I guess, that that mix? Well, the first bit is it made me miss her horribly. Um, you know, I, I was already uh, devastated because she was such an important mentor. And then to read a lot of the things, um, especially some of the chapters and the articles that I hadn't read before, my first response, now I want to ask her all these questions and I didn't even know. Okay. Um, uh, what, what I, what I most appreciate, um, is that, the way that she taught, um, and how do I say this? The way that she taught actually helps me understand her writing. So one of the things I always say to uh, my students when I'm teaching is that often when you read academic books in general, but in particular academic books by people of color, by women, uh, female scholars, people who are not your traditional European or U.S. wealthy white men, often they are actually far more formal in tone and have to prove they can cite all 1,500 people who came before them before they can then say what they want to say, right? There's sort of this sense of if I am a liberationist, I have to show that I know the whole traditional canon before I can then uh, talk about liberation theology, which mm. which is flawed and is one of the things Marcella critiques. Um, <clears throat> but I think what happens often uh, for many of us is that we, we have almost um, that mechanism where we show what we know, and then we say where it takes us, right? I mean, it's expected mm. in academic writing. Um, and so I think engaging um, with Marcella's books in particular can be tricky because she had to really show, right, how she was bringing these various forms of academic knowledge together before she could simply say what she was trying to say. Um, And there's less of that sometimes in the chapter she wrote for other books um, or some of the articles where she was just able to tackle a theme and move forward with it. Um, I've tried to be super conscious of that in my own writing. Um, I even had that drama a little bit in my PhD because I did some field work during my PhD and I wanted the actual product to be relevant to the people I was working with. And it turns out that writing for, you know, a PhD committee and writing for the people you're working with are two very different things. So, um, 
But yeah, so navigating that I think was made actually far easier by knowing her um, because in her own context, when she was teaching or talking, um, she could say straightforwardly, here is what I'm thinking. And then that academic writing, you know, sort of talked a lot about where it came from and how it intersected with others. Um, So it was tricky. And then I also just had to make lots of lists of here's what I'm going to talk about and here's what I'm not going to talk about yeah. to actually keep myself on task and mm. keep the book to a manageable length. <laughs> well, it certainly is. And, it, and I think it really does. Um, it really is an excellent introduction, an excellent way in for folks. Because I think I've often like, you know, when, when people are talking about like, you know, recommending different kinds of queer theology or, or, or things for people out there, there's often that question of like, oh, I've heard of Marcella Arthur, but I don't think I would be able to engage, like, you know, um, or could, is that readable or is that, you know, the questions that come up? And I think mm-hmm. this book really shows you a way in um, and and is, is very helpful as that kind of a wading into a, a vaster ocean. Um, yeah. In the, you, you open up the conclusion with this uh, great line, which is Althus Reed wanted us to upend our ideas of what is normal by focusing on real experiences. Um, and I think, uh, you know, of all the things that I guess, you know, one of the things that really, I guess, yeah, d- does where you say is ahead of her time and really blew open a lot of doors. And um, one thing that, you know, also helped with that work she was doing in challenging liberation and feminist theologies of the time was to go, you know, was that real attention to lived experiences and particularly real experiences of folks who, who were, as you say, not just marginalised but completely excluded. Can you just talk to us, for folks who aren't really familiar or aware, a bit of that kind of aspect of Marcella's work, of that that real attention to real experiences and how that shaped and both her critique and, I guess, her, her constructive project? Absolutely. So, um, so it first stems, you know, from the method of liberation theology itself, which is I can think whatever I want to think, but it's what I'm doing that shows what I really believe, right? So I can think and say that I'm on the side of the poor or, you know, I want to end poverty, but it's it's what I'm doing in my everyday life that really shows, right? It's what I do in my everyday life um, that either builds or destroys my relationship with God. It's not what I say to God, right? It's my actual, like, God's kind of smart and knows <laughs> what's going on um, is, is, you know, how um, uh, we think about this within the Christian tradition. And so um, what happens a lot within theology is that two, two things. One is we tend to want to find kind of simple framing definitions, right? How should I behave? What is sin? What is salvation? Like, give me an answer. There are a lot of people on the planet in a lot of different situations, and there is not going to be one answer. Um. And so actually thinking through 
what is happening in these real situations is going to tell us a lot more about our relationship with God and each other than any sort of dogma or should piece that's coming down from above. And and one of the things Marcella really appreciated about uh, liberation theology, particularly in its early years, and feminist theology in its early years was this sense of that we do want to actually talk, you know, we want to talk with the poor. Of course, when I say we, it's non-poor, right? Going to talk with the poor. Um, or in feminist theology, of course, what ended up happening was white middle-class U.S. and European women ended up dominating, right? So we kind of reproduce these things. So two pieces have to come out of this. One is to recognize that there is not one normative experience and then every other experience is abnormal, right? Normal is just what we've decided the dominant thing should be, um, which tends to exclude most of us. Thinking uh, when I first started talking about, you know, when you're in a tenure track position and trying to get tenure, you, if you don't already have them, you develop some mental health issues. And uh, I remember talking to a few of my colleagues about, oh yeah, I've started seeing a therapist. Holy moly, pretty much everyone else I spoke to was also (laughs) seeing a therapist. Um, But it was, you know, it, it was seen as abnormal even though it was the majority of people um, who were needing, you know, help um, to actually struggle through these situations. And so normative, um, uh, as well as sort of rule setting from above, is very problematic because it doesn't come out of what's actually happening with us. Um, and doesn't enable us, I think, to connect to each other or really communicate with each other because we hide so much of what we see as as not normal. Um, and so that's kind of, you know, that's where Marcella's starting point was, is theology is not about trying to grow churches or, you know, have however many million Christians in the world. Theology is actually about connecting us to each other and to God. And we can only actually do that if we start to look at what our own experiences are um, and share those with each other. Yeah, thank you for that. That's 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 really helpful. Mm-hmm. I think something that's interesting you're touching on there is, so when I started to read the book, okay, there's a very short biography chapter, kind of introduction, then a short biography chapter. <laughs> then the kind of next chapter it's kind of a, a surprise for some in terms of progression um, in that it's the theological marketplace. Uh, so before we're getting into, you know, the work itself, it's, it's, uh-huh. it's this. But I think what's so important is the way that, you know, you show that myself thought that basically the way theology is done in in, in the sense that we think about theology uh, as a discipline um, is counter much of what you've just said we're trying to do, right? It doesn't support... Yeah. Um, a liberate, you know, tr- trying to be a liberation theology and trying to be about liberation means you need to be like in community and able to do activism. And the academic life doesn't support that because it moves you around and, <laughs> and doesn't want you to be loud and all that kind of stuff. And, or, yeah. you know, you are part necessarily yeah. of this capitalist system that, you know, you have to take experience and, you know, 
put it in, into a book that you value from, you know, like it, it, it's a really helpful, yes. not only, you know, wading into what she's, what she was wrestling with, but, but what the situation that we're all in that, you know, yes. despite whatever we're going to try to do, we are trapped in here. So, so I guess talk to us a bit about the theological marketplace and, uh, and I guess, especially <sighs> as a way that it, um, yes, complicates all our, all, all these very best intentions. <laughs> So, so the the irony, if I'm using irony in its appropriate way, is is that is the the ironic thing would be to actually develop a career as a liberation theologian, right? And I, I often joke with my students that that I I am a faux liberationist. I mean, I, I I hope that's not true, right? But there is. There are definitely aspects of my life, of all our lives, right, where where we are hypocritical and not um, certainly my own lived experience, right, is not uh, the same as the the lived experience of someone who is homeless uh, living under a bridge, um, and and so so this is. A really, and I struggle with this all the time, and I think many um, activists do, is this this balance between, um, yes, I want to be able to teach, I want to be able to research, but my purpose for teaching and research is to try to upend the the horrific systems of power that are seen as normal in order to teach and be published i have to participate in those systems <clears throat> so i have to get tenure right i i have to no i don't have to but i became a full professor and now i'm a professor of religion and I've published some books and it's important to write so that other people can read, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I am part of this capitalist system. I am part of this heterosexual system. I'm part of this patriarchal system, right? I'm part of this racist system. And so, so this is the tension, right, that we're living with, is that we're both part of the system and we're trying to struggle against it. And so constantly trying to balance um, uh, that and, and remind ourselves of what we're actually trying to do um, uh, is, is really difficult, right? It, it's hard to kind of hold your headspace or your, I, I don't want to call it sanity because I'm not even sure what sanity is, right? But but sort of about halfway through a semester of teaching my students, I have to step back and think, am I helping them to unpack these systems of power or am I still trying to transmit some specific form of knowledge, right? When I, when I write a book, Am I, you know, do I get halfway through and find that I'm suddenly lecturing on what you should think about X? Or am I still trying to just 
open up the possibilities, right? And it, it's it's really difficult. Um, and I think I think Marcelta Marcella felt it, and I think a lot of us feel it that um, you most of us can't be completely outside the system. Right. Most of us are both going to be exploited by these various systems, but also exploiting others um, simply, you know, in my existence. Right. I benefit from certain things uh, that others don't. And it's hard to if nearly not nearly impossible to actually remove both the privilege and the oppression. Right. As an individual. Yeah, thank you for that. I think that, that that is helpful and, and it really well um, laid out in that chapter. And um, so, so moving to another thing, I was thinking about you know if we talked about this idea of you know trying to draw attention to or not ignore those parts of the you know community that that are fully excluded or or um, messy messy up our nice neat conceptual. This is what things are. Mm-hmm. Um, Marcella also does that with the body. Uh, rather that yeah. um, so I remember um, uh, reading a Lisa Isherwood chapter on on, on Marcella where she kind of took Marcella challenging feminist theologians to um, stop focusing on the womb and turn their attention to the vagina. You know that that, that was yeah. you know a necessary you know that that we've kind of the woman's body had been kind of you know either essentialized or just like made neat by certain focus. And there's a point where you're talking mm-hmm. here about you know for Alphys Reed theology also ignores the hairy armpit because hairy armpits yeah. refuse to follow the status quo. So uh, I'm curious yeah. to yeah, get your insights a bit and, and, and yeah, talk to us a bit about, you know, this attention to the body um, and bodies mm-hmm. um, in ways yeah. that, like, I guess, we're, again, this challenge and this, you know, attention to the fullness and the messiness. Yeah. So, so Christianity has this weird combination of both Wanting to prioritize the soul over the body or the spirit over the body, but also being super obsessive about what we can and cannot do with our bodies, right? Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you just take, for example, in the U.S. Um, and not not in many other countries now, but in the U.S., for example, right, most young boys are circumcised. Um, and this is this is very normal uh, in the U.S. And and when I say this to my European friends, like, why would you do that? Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and 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 no one certainly um, in terms of theologies in the U.S. Right. Challenges this mutilation of young boys um, in it. <sighs> But yet the Christian tradition has been very um, uh, obsessed with what our bodies should be like, what is appropriate, particularly for women, although for, for men as well, right? So um, menstruation for a long time was seen as, you know, impure rather than like, it means we can actually reproduce and like create anyway, um, you know, and, and then, and in this changes over time. Right. Mm. So when the European women came over as colonizers, um, 
being hairy was actually a positive for the women because it meant they could actually grow body hair in ways that indigenous women did not, right? So the indigenous women remained children because they were hairless, whereas the 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 colonizing females, right, were they grew body hair. Now we're not so fond of female body hair. Um, and <sighs> And there's also an odd way in which the Christian tradition is quite happy to shift its notion in some aspects of how we change our bodies, but then not in others, right? So, okay, you know, most of us no longer follow the biblical exhortation as women to not cut our hair, right? We cut our hair. We trim our nails. Um, we might get nose jobs or boob jobs, but God... God forbid you should touch the genitalia other than for male circumcision, right? Like, don't actually change, you know, don't remove the penis. Don't All of these things that, that comes with, you know, um, trans, being transgender or attempting to change sex is suddenly like, no, like, that's the thing we can't do, right? Uh, yeah. We can do all these other things and we should do some mm, of them. Mm. Um, but suddenly we put a limit. Right. Mm, so suddenly mm. it's like, but no, you're created in the image of God. Okay. What about all the rest of the stuff? Um, and so I think um, Marcella had two perspectives on this. One was that you can't actually um, sort of harken back to the ideal body um, because quite frankly, in the Christian tradition, there has never been an actual ideal body. Um, and so, so thinking of not changing ourselves in that way, um, just, it doesn't make sense. But the second thing is that we really need to overcome this sort of hatred or denigration of the body, um, that happens, um, not just in the Christian tradition, but particularly in the Christian tradition, um, you know, I, I am, I am in my body, right? I'm going to have to learn to at least deal with it. Um, you know, maybe change some of it, but certainly come to terms with it, if not deeply love it. Um, and this is a, this is something that, that is, is really important that we don't often do. And I think then, right, makes us, uncomfortable with our sexuality and all sorts of other things um, because we're not even comfortable with our bodily existence to begin with. Um, so the body, um, you know, I mean, if we're created in the image of God, if God actually came to earth and took on, you know, became human as Jesus, like you can't, then say the human body is horrific. So um, there's a lot to unpack there um, that, that we haven't done well in the Christian tradition. And I think it opens up a lot of areas to really celebrate the body, but mm. also be much more, um, much more open to the whole variety of bodies that exist. Again, if you go back to that, what is normal, right? I mean, mm. what we consider as, as able-bodied versus disabled or, you know, anything mm. like that, like who is tall and who is short, what's supposed to be the appropriate height, what's supposed to be the appropriate, you know, just all of these things that we set as normative, um, 
as if somehow there has to be one static definition, um, I think is really detrimental um, to our own experience of knowing each other, but also to to knowing God as well. Mm. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. And I think, as you say, like, you know, that that discomfort with or outright disdain for the body or at least this kind of, or this kind of complete ignoring of a person in my body and what does that mean obviously then has this play out on on theology right on the theology that people produce um in in their ignoring of right. the body ignoring of their desire um allows for you know very different um you know you know complete like um just uh overlooking of, of very obvious things um mm-hmm. i think of like um you know um i think it's in in lynn marie tonstad's queer theology it talks about like you know had bart been more attentive to whatever he was desiring than it, you know and whatever was going on in his um, home life at the time he's running the church dogmatics then you know maybe he'd have come to the yes. um ordering of the genders you know a bit differently you know had, had this attention okay. being paid so um and so i guess i'm thinking then about you know Myself talked you know earlier in the queer god she's talking about you know that that the way that desire can get um crossed over right that you know you're thinking about mm-hmm. the, an old lover while reciting the Nicene Creed or whatever it might be or, or, or these, these things Absolutely. kind of intermingle yeah um and I guess that's a, an important thing I'd, I'd be interested to talk about the way that just that you know that we do our thinking of God amidst all our th- other things <laughs> Right. I actually have a note. Yes. I was reading about it, a section about that in your book, and I wrote a note that, like, in the in the margins, I'm I'm reading this while like the Wiggles is playing in the background, and I'm being a neglectful father. <laughs> um, and another one one child's watching the Wiggles, the other is crawling over my feet at the desk. Um, but that's what's happening at this yeah. moment that I consider this way of thinking about God. Like, um, so yeah. so yeah. I guess talk to us yeah. a bit about that and the way. Um, I guess the way that you know, yeah, yeah, you you would encourage people to think about the, how that is okay, freeing, absolutely, um, a, 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 and how people might yeah move in that, open to that, yeah. So, again, I think this sometimes comes from our our assumption that that body and soul are separate right We're, we we like dualisms for some reason in the west right we like good and bad black and white like we, we like to kind of separate things out um but i don't i don't think about we don't really think about god separately to thinking about other things right um we we may want to, um, and I actually say in my in my book on sex, right? Many of my students have said to me like, no, 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 no. One one does not think about God when one is having sex. That's just too weird. Um, you know, which is kind of funny if you actually, you know, in the Christian tradition, think about God as being present because whether or not you want to think about God in that situation, right? God, God is there, whatever's happening. Um, and and. I think, how do I say this? I think we would like there to be something formal out there that is God and a set of rules often um, because it's much harder to, in every moment of my existence, remember that I'm actually with God, that God is with me, right? That God is in this conversation. 
Um, and I think we often find that intimidating in part because we have this notion of God, which is another thing that Marcella critiques is like somehow up there above and human beings are in this horrible debt to God that we're never going to get out of. And, you know, only God's salvation can rescue us. Um, <clears throat> and, and it's also possible to think of ourselves just in mutual relationship with God. Like God wants us as much as we want God. God is just present, you know? Um, and, but I think that's, it's very difficult, right? We're not, we're not taught in that way. Um, we're also not in general taught about intersections between a lot of the different parts of our lives, right? Um, so my sex life is over here. My economic life is over here. My student life is here. Um, it doesn't actually work like that. Um, but that's somehow, you know, what we're, we're supposed to deal with it, right? You compartmentalize, you put things in, in their little boxes. Um, and, and whilst that might make life easier, were it to be true, it's not true. And I think it, it, um, causes us, um, a lot of mental anguish, right? Mm -hmm. When we, when we try to keep those things, uh, separate. And so thinking about sex, thinking about God, thinking about my next cup of coffee, which I'm thinking about right now, because that's pretty much what I always think about. Um, those are all intertwined. Um, they are not separate aspects of my life um, at all. Mm. Um, and and my, my desire for coffee, my desire for another human being uh, is all part of my general desire to experience life, to experience God, to experience others. You mm. know, this is all connected. Mm. That's really helpful. It's, it's interesting. We were talking before we started recording about um, some of the demands we've seen, you know, um, some professors put on students in terms of um, Zoom etiquette of like, you know, you need to be in yes. this like quiet, sanitized <laughs> space in order to do Zoom. Right. It's like, well, it completely ignores the actual material reality of folks. It completely ignores how we learn in general. Like, and, and I think that's, you know, an example is we want to be able to say like, this is that part of your life and everything else should be able to shut off now. And I mean, right. not only does that right. cause anguish, as you say, it just naturally is going to exclude a whole bunch of folks. Um, and yeah. It's, right. So yeah, I think that's an interesting. It's also particularly funny if you're in a classroom and you're talking about things like gender and sex and religion mm -hmm. to then expect any of us to shut off parts of our life, right? That's exactly what the whole system is trying to do. So if I am in a classroom saying, well, don't think about the fact that, you know, your mom just lost her job or your dog just died. It's like, no, it, yeah. you know, what, what we are trying to do is learn how to become more deeper thinking, better human beings. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean cutting off parts of what we're experiencing. It means bringing them in and coping with them. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know, this is going to lead to you know having a more being able to approach things more freely then um, because right. you're not trying to like wrestle it in um, when you're talking about talking about like sex and gender in class. I was thinking about like you know just how much different that class is going to be if you're in the class with like you know someone you got a crush on compared to if you don't like that your whole yes. experience of discussion of sex and and yes. what you choose to say, how you interpret what people say, yes. <laughs> like how you yes. how you try to moderate your yes. body language, like it's all like you know these things totally transform like you know um oh, gosh. i definitely remember like Absolutely. like lessons i've learned based on like people who were in and, and like what they said or um you know 
or, 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 the, or the alternative, you know, you remember those embarrassing moments that you've said and they, but they oh. stick with you pedagogically, like somehow. Like, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah. I won't share on camera and recorded my most embarrassing pedagogical moments, but I have them. I do have them. <laughs> and I, I do. Yes, I do. Uh. Um, it's, it's funny that you say that because I have had students, um, you know, before say, okay, so do we actually have to share with the rest of the class what we're writing our papers on? Or do we, you know, because often mm. students want to research things or test out new perspectives. And, you know, as, as I said before we started recording as well, right, it's, it, it's only once you actually start writing something and publish it that you realize that that this is a process, right? You're, you may think that in the moment, but it doesn't mean that, you know, your thinking won't shift. Um, and so certainly with issues of, of race, class, gender, et cetera, you know, I've had students who are like, I, I really want to write about this. I really want to think about this, but I don't, I don't want necessarily everybody to be involved in my thinking process. Um, and part of that is because we, we, are, for lack of a better word, we do tend to be very judgy, right? Mm -hmm. um, which, of course, we, we shouldn't be. Um, but I think um, uh, we often are. And so that openness and that freeness um, that, that you're talking about, I think, is often not celebrated in, in academic spaces. Um, not only are there particular things you're supposed to learn and particular ways you're supposed to learn, um, but often new and different ideas are, are critiqued rather than, rather than celebrated, um, mm. which mm. is problematic, particularly in theology. Yeah. Um, you know, as I said, like you have to follow the line of the 1500 mm. who came before you, and then you can do this one little thing differently, <laughs> um, which is, is, uh, <clears throat> yeah, mm -hmm. maybe not the way our real lives work. No, very true. Um, so, uh, talk a bit about the, the uh, you know, you have a chapter toward the end on a marginal God. Um, mm. and you know, this idea that Christianity this is from Alpha three Christianity is a religion built around a destitute God who came for destitute, uh, people. And I guess, you know, mm -hmm. part of what you're, you're demonstrating here through her work is this idea of God not being at the center, um, that there's this kind of, okay. almost a kind of an image of, we put God right in the middle and then we put a box around that middle and that, you know, delineates where both where God is and where the rightness of humanity and our concepts are, are lie and, and, and stuff like that. So talk to us a bit about, you know, this idea of, yes, moving God, you know, because some people say, oh, God has to be the centre because that's what God is, right? <laughs> like, um, so, yes. so talk to us a bit about the God not being in the centre uh, and I guess yep. why that's actually good news. <laughs> so, so if I pretend to be a geographer at the moment. Um, one of the, one of the things that, that happens of course with mapping, right. Is that when you map a space, you map it from your own perspective. So if you see a flat map of the world, um, produced in the U S or produced by Europe, it may look very different to a flat map of the world if it were to be produced by an Australian, right? Um, 
just what we center, what we see as the edges, right? How we um, how we actually present that space, um, and I think a, a lot more people are, are aware of this today, right? When you look at a map, when you make a map, there are certain decisions that have to be made, and every map is going to show some bias, right? And and you you have to be pretty clear, um, or hopefully you would want to be clear about what that bias is. We don't do that very well with theology um, <laughs> in terms of, of, first of all, we don't even acknowledge that we are the humans creating the map, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, there's often uh, this sense of somehow um, I or someone else gets a direct line to God and now I know what God is saying. Mm-hmm. So that's awkward, first of all, in and of itself. Um <laughs> Because, you know, humans are finite and mm-hmm. God is infinite, uh, so the Christian tradition says. So that's, that, that's making some difficult assumptions. Um, second of all, um, I can only see, and this is Marcella's perspective as well, I can only understand God from my own perspective. And this is why being with others, living with others is so important, right? Because you are also understanding God from your perspective. And it's only by us experiencing God together that we actually get a slightly larger picture of God. Mm. What has happened um, in the mainstream Christian traditions is that God has been sort of framed in these particular Western ways. So um, Marcella talks about how we think about redemption from sin in these economic ways, these capitalist mm. ways, which is weird. Um, that, um, you know, we often have God as like the benevolent grandfather or something, uh, which for those people without benevolent grandfathers, not a helpful metaphor. Um what what we do is narrow and narrow and narrow. And um, and this is one of the things I really like about Minjung theology. I don't know if you're at all familiar with uh, Korean Minjung theology, but this kind of notion that it's almost that God has been imprisoned and we actually need to rescue God and Jesus from this imprisonment. And so thinking about God as a God that has, rather than that God actually being in the center, that we think God is in the center. Mm. In fact, by creating this small construct and box for God, we actually have exiled God. So God is no longer right here because God is so much bigger and more expansive, right? God is living at the margins with the marginalized, expanding, flowing, becoming, um, in, in ways that that we at the center do not understand, cannot comprehend. Mm. And so it's almost like we've shoved God to one side while still saying that <clears throat> we put him, <laughs> right, our male God, <laughs> at the center. Mm. Um, but so this concept of a marginal God is simply to say that, that God is ebbing and flowing and becoming. God mm. is not static. God mm. is not the same. God can't be put in a box. Um, And so when you do that, you end up with an idol or a false God, whilst God's self Mm -hmm. is actually 
um, being experienced by humans at the margins, simply because people at the margins, as we call them, um, are open to God in ways that many of us are not. Mm. So it's not that God has chosen to leave us, right? It's that we we are not open to actually seeing God or actually experiencing God, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yes, no, very, very much does. Thank you. So yeah. um, thinking about, you know, having spent the time on this project and and read, you know, so much, I'm telling you, kind of, you know, kind of led off with, you know, how in so many ways she was ahead of her time um, mm-hmm. and, 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 how that, you know, broke open a lot of things. Now thinking it's, you know, 2021, so we're um, 12 years um, after she died. 12 years. Um, where do you see her, like, do you feel like theology, like obviously a lot hasn't, but like has much like heeded what she was trying to do? Have you seen shifts? Do you still think like, in you know, it, it, there was, she's um, shone a light in the trajectory, but that trajectory wasn't taken up in ways that it could? Um yeah, I'm just curious where you see now things, um, yeah, how things are situated now, you know, and what she was trying to encourage uh, theologians to do. Oh, gosh, great question. Um, what a coulda, shoulda is super difficult, right? Mm, um, okay, oh yeah. so there are a couple of, of things. One is um, I I would think um that um so one of the things that i have been very critical of is um this is going to sound terrible is um the the move for same sex marriage um not because i am in any way opposed to same sex marriage but because marriage as a construct is mm. horrific in so many ways um damaging to many mm. people. Mm. And so so one of the things that that Marcella also talked about was was this sense that we need not to how do I explain this? So one of the problems with inclusion is that we want to bring people into mm-hmm. the center, right? We want to bring, you know, please feel free to be <laughs> part of my community, mm-hmm. right? Be sort of enough like me so that I'm still comfortable, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Maybe change a tiny bit, but but don't don't make me actually expand the community, right? You mm-hmm. come in, you be included, but let's not go this way. Um, and I think that's partly um, um, what sort of happened, uh, in, particularly in the U.S. Um, of with same-sex marriage was a sense of okay, come come be part of this system that we have decided is the the basic construct for society. Um, rather than, I mean, certainly um, in the UK and other countries, right, far fewer people are getting married, right? That's sort of, that may no longer be the basic construct of society. Um, And so I think um, in terms of the way that we're thinking theologically, we still are in liberationists like myself often are, are in a mode of trying to see how we can include, how we can welcome people in, and we're still failing to actually go out to, right, leave where I am. Um, So that it's not a question of how can I make 
African-Americans feel welcome in this community, right? It's how does this community need to change, right? How should African-Americans change this community, right? So that they can live and survive and thrive. So it's not about me going and welcoming someone else. It's about, you know, actually moving out and expanding. Mm. Um, And I think theologically, we're still really struggling with that. And I think we also still, um, we still would like to have a simple definition of sin, a simple definition of salvation, right? Um, Complexities are really difficult to deal with. Change is really difficult to deal with. Um, Certainly one of the other things um, that I think, um, uh, apart from uh, uh, sexuality, um, Marcella also um, talked a lot in the context of sexuality and of economics, but talked a lot about indigenous perspectives, right? Certainly in the U.S., we have epically failed to deal with um, our ongoing colonization of the indigenous here. And I know other countries uh, struggle with that too, right? So there there are ways in which um, our theologies are still tiptoeing around a lot of issues rather than tackling them head on. Mm. Um, and so, you know, we still have transgender issues. We still have racial issues. We still have coloni- you know, colonization. Mm. There, there is a whole host of things um, um, that we're, we're still not making a lot of progress. <laughs> um, but I mean, you know, it's all right. We're human. We need to work toward it. But I think, I think um, one of the reasons why I wanted to work on this book was because Marcella pushed forward so many of these boundaries. And mm. there are so many that, that uh, areas that she worked in that we haven't even seen as boundaries yet, right? Mm. We don't even often acknowledge um, that, that there's a lot, I think, that we, that we, we still need to tackle. It was a long answer to your. To but your it was question. a very good answer, and I think <laughs> and, a, and a great endorsement for, for the book. Yes, I was thinking just at the the last bit, that, just to share this that line that you have right toward the end of the conclusion. For Althus Reed, the goal is not to formulate one theology, but to celebrate the diverse ways of knowing God. And I think you know that's been a, a great encouragement through this um, conversation. So, folks, if you've ever thought, I really want to, you know understand and read and and you know get into Marcella Arthur's read this is the book to get you there to start you off Thea Cooper's Queer and Indecent an Introduction to Marcella Arthur's Read uh, it's really wonderful and as you said there were so many chapters so many boundaries and borders and topics that we didn't even cover that that you know would be a conversation in themselves and it's really accessible has um, each chapter ends with suggested reading um look at that not to not to you know Thea did her job it's and kept it to a very not too long. It's in paperback. Look at that. You know, yeah. lots of lots of reasons to get it. There's very few hurdles to jump over, folks. So so pick up the book. Uh, Thea, is there, thank you for coming on the podcast. Is there anything else you'd like to promote or, or draw our attention to at this moment? Um, no, I mean, I would say, um, one of the things um, that, that I'm working on at the moment, there are a couple of things that I think I'd love for other people to take forward. One is um, I think we do need to do a lot of work certainly on reproductive justice. Um, so notions of reproduction that comes up a lot in Marcella's work. It's also mm. come up before in my work. Um, the other thing which I may get to um, 
if I don't die of old age first, but I would love to see um, what what I would like to call a theology of the cervix, right? We mm. were talking about how often we think about women as like womb or, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but I think, you know, thinking about um, particular areas of women's bodies that we have ignored, I think is is super important. And just just trying to imagine how we might talk about God without using male language, mm, not because mm. there's anything wrong with male language, but just because we've done that for mm-hmm. a long time, mm-hmm. right? So actually trying to imagine just, let's just say cervix, mm-hmm. go from there. So anyway, suggestions for, you know, people who want to do fun theology. There you go. Maybe someone's looking for a PhD supervisor that can reach out to Thea. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, but no, that, that that's really great. I think, yeah, it touches on so much of what this whole book and this conversation is about is there's just so many things that are just completely ignored or elided, obfuscated mm. in theology that are just yep. absolute everyday essential part of our lives. And uh, right. the better we can hold things together, the better, you know, our lives will be, the work for justice will be, and our, and our yep. talk on God will be. So um, thank you for encouraging us. I hope folks feel that way. Folks, get the book. And uh, Thea, we'll have to have you on again sometime. <clears throat> Sounds good. Thank you so much. No worries. See you all next week, folks.